Good morning to you and good morning online. If you have a Bible, if you'd open to uh, Book of Mark, chapter 11. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are the King of kings and you're worthy of our praise. I pray that you would, through the power of your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit, cause our lives to back up the songs that we sing. Not because we are anything at all in of ourselves, but because your spirit's at work among us and within us. That we would be able to praise you truly and honor you deeply because you are, in fact, the Lord of our lives. And through that relationship, you bring transformation to us and you bring blessing to the world. That would be our prayer. And we pray that as we look into your word this morning, you would, you would further that. Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Mark chapter 11, we're looking at the um, well-known Palm Sunday passage And we are looking at the verse that I suspect gets the least attention. It is a Palm Sunday verse that gets thought of probably never. And I actually think it is really critical. You can understand Palm Sunday without understanding this verse. You can't understand this verse without understanding Palm Sunday, however. And it is absolutely pivotal. It is absolutely central to what God is showing us in this passage. So I want to read that one verse and get us thinking and um, see what's going on in their lives and then hopefully find some application for our lives. So this is right after Jesus has come over the Mount of Olives, right? He's been in Bethany, which is about two miles away, and he walks to Jerusalem part of the way and then he rides a donkey the rest of the way. Um, Two miles for people that are accustomed to walking everywhere isn't that big of a deal, but still takes uh, a good part of an hour. And because of where they're walking, it would take uh, the better part of an hour or even over an hour. And riding on a donkey in the middle of a parade is going to slow it down even more. So it's probably taking Jesus a couple of hours to get from Bethany into Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is steep uh, to climb up from the east, and then it is steep going down towards the west. And actually, if you've been there, it was a lot steeper back then because there's been 2,000 years of erosion. And so all of the excavations have to dig down pretty deep to get to where the bottom of the Kidron Valley really was. So they would go further down than we would be familiar with, climb up a steeper climb than we'd be familiar with to get into the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus has been probably a couple of hours getting into Jerusalem, an hour or so getting back because he doesn't have the donkey and the parade dynamic going on. And uh, that's important to keep in mind because uh, he apparently leaves Bethany at maybe four in the afternoon. That's my guess, but it's plausible and I'll show you why. Um, and it, it seems kind of odd that he would do that. He, he comes into town right at the end of the day. And as he's riding in, there's the passage we're familiar with. The people are gathering around. They're, they're thronging the roads. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save, save. They're uh, praising. They're waving palm branches and laying cloaks in the middle of the, the road, which is actually a symbol of, of kingship. It's, it, it kind of references back into an Old Testament passage. Uh, Jesus riding on the donkey is a deliberate 
deliberate and direct application or fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy about Messiah coming into town. So it is a passage that is dripping with both religious and political fervor because those two things went hand in glove in their minds. They were looking for a Messiah to come and save them and a substantial part of that salvation in their mind was a political salvation. And so it's this moment of great fervor and it shows up. People are just hooting and hollering and really excited. And then Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the end of the parade. And here's what it says in uh, Mark eleven eleven. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now think about that for a minute. Why did he come into Jerusalem in the first place? What was the point? He comes in, there's the big parade. The parade would have happened any day he came in. It's the week leading up to Passover. There are people streaming into the city every single day. It could have literally just as easily been Palm Monday, which would have been kind of cool because maybe we would have had an extra holiday out of the deal, right? But it could have been Palm Monday. He could have waited and come in more early in the morning and done the whole parade thing and the big announcement thing. And then he could have gone into Jerusalem and he could have done some teaching. He could have worked some miracles. He could have had some challenging conversations with the leaders that were out of alignment. He could have done all kinds of stuff, but instead he doesn't. He decides to go ahead and go into Jerusalem even though he's not gonna have time to do anything. The only thing he's going to have time to do is walk into the temple, look around at everything, turn around and walk out. It's not like he hasn't seen the temple. He's been there repeatedly. It's not like new things are going on. It's exactly as it's always been. So why does he wait until maybe four in the afternoon to go through all the trouble, have all the big announcement, come into the temple, do exactly nothing, turn around, go back over the mountain and wait until the next day to come in? That's a question we have to really wrestle with. Why does he do that? Something's odd. Now, it doesn't make sense that this is just kind of a narrative detail because that doesn't answer the question of Jesus' intention. Right, well, he did that, so Mark writes it down. All right, well, Mark makes a point out of it, but maybe it just happened, and, and so he just wrote it in there. But why would Jesus do that in the first place? And what's the point of looking around? What does he see? And what does what he sees have to do with what follows? I think as we wrestle with that question, we'll understand what's going on in their day better. And we'll also have some really fruitful things to wrestle with for our own hearts. Some questions to ask ourselves. When we think of Palm Sunday, we we think of palm branches and excitement and enthusiasm and the king is coming in and all of that is actually true, but it's easy to miss that it's a totally ironic, tragic, um, almost farcical picture. Palm Sunday is almost a farce because um, when Jesus comes in as the king, It's not how we read it through our own theological lens. And when I got here this morning, I had this harebrained idea that I was going to go find somewhere in our children's ministry a hand puppet that looked like a king. (laughs) And I didn't find any hand puppets at all. But I found Michelle, and she runs a tight ship. 
And she says, of course we have hand puppets. We have animals, we have people, what would you like? I said, a people and hopefully something that evokes a king. She said, got you covered. And she came back upstairs with this. Well, actually, it was almost this. What you can't tell is this is actually a doctor. There he is in his lab coat. It even says MD on it. And right here, that's actually his stethoscope, that round thing there, looking nothing like a king. And Michelle said, give me five minutes and a glue gun, and I can fix that, which is cool. And that's exactly the problem that Palm Sunday points out. The world wants a Jesus that if he doesn't show up looking the way we like, give me five minutes and a glue gun and I can fix that. I can make him look how I want. I want a hand puppet, Jesus. I want a king who's not actually very kingly. I want one who rides into town and starts asking me what I want. Asks for my lists of wishes and even demands. And, and kings don't do that. Kings make demands. Kings tell. Now, good kings serve, and Jesus is the greatest king of all, and he's the greatest servant of all. But he's still a king. And the farce that unfolds on Palm Sunday is people are proclaiming him king when they really want a hand puppet and about five minutes with a glue gun. They've got what they have in mind. And when Jesus comes in, he's not that at all. And his going to the temple and looking around and seemingly doing nothing is actually doing something very significant because it's flipping the story around the right way. They recognize him as king. They have no idea what that means. Well, actually, they have an idea of what that means, and it's all wrong. That's part of why, by the way, Jesus repeatedly, early in his ministry, tells people, yes, I worked a miracle. Don't tell people who I am. He's not trying to keep it under wraps. He's trying to keep some false narrative from running amok. You think I'm the Messiah. Well, I am the Messiah, but you have no idea what that means. And I don't want your agenda to start running loose in the world and making it really hard for me to do my agenda because that's what I'm here for. I'm a king. I've come to do certain things. And Mark 11, 11 is one of those little verses that when you understand it, you go, oh, that's what's going on in the story. Let's read that verse again and then let's think about what it's saying and see if perhaps... More scripture would help us here. So in verse 11, 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He went into the temple and he looked around at everything. And it's already late. So he goes back to Bethany with the 12. And then things start happening on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Why does he come into Jerusalem just to look around? Well, let me give you some scriptures to think about fairly familiar scriptures and fairly familiar concepts, but just remind us of these things in a general sense. Psalm 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. 
Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4, which we looked at just a few weeks ago, says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Over and over again, there's this idea that God is keeping careful watch over this world. When the kings of old were evaluated, read through the king lists. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did good in the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Over and over and over and over again, there's this idea, God is watching. God is watching everything. And with that watching can come blessing or can come judgment, depending on the scenario. Deuteronomy, where the law is being laid out and people are being called to live in light of that, It says, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. In those most pivotal passages, places like Genesis 6, God's about to destroy the whole world and yet Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. The whole blessing and the way it's going to unfold is being threatened because Hagar's running away. And she's supposed to be part of the household. She's not burying the son of promise, but she is burying a son who will be blessed because he is Abraham's seed. She's scared. She's being abused. She's running away. The angel of the Lord physically manifests to meet her. And he stops her and he questions her and he encourages her and he strengthens her and he promises her blessing and he turns her around and he sends her back and the place where that happened was a well that when Hagar thought about it, she named the well Bir Lahai Roi, the well of the living one who sees me. There's blessing because God has seen me. He's paid particular attention to me. When God shows up in um, the wilderness, the burning bush, here's what he says to Moses. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I've seen and I've come down to be involved. There's a blessing. Sometimes there's judgment too because as God goes on in that passage as he's interacting with Moses, he says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by my mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. God coming and God seeing has this element of blessing but it also has this boom that comes with it. He's lowering the boom on Egypt. And he says so in so many words. That element shows up repeatedly. God looks, he sees, 
he judges. In fact, sometimes he, he's very conspicuous in his integrity. God always has unassailable integrity, and yet we love to assail it, right? We love to accuse. We love to disregard. We love to uh, attribute motives that are not God's motives. And so there are times that he goes above and beyond to show his conspicuous integrity in what he's doing, and sometimes he does that in moments of judgment. So in the Genesis passage where Moses find, or Noah finds grace in the eyes of God, it starts by saying that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every thought and intention of the hearts of all of mankind were only evil continually and God re- regretted that he had made them and determined to destroy the earth with a flood. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? Or we have, just a little bit later in Genesis 11, it says this. This is the Tower of Babel. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. He, he comes with his own eyes. He knows what's going on. He doesn't have a, a, a insufficient understanding or lacking data, but he puts his feet. He, first off, he puts on feet. He takes a, 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 some sort of physical, human-like form and steps onto the earth and he goes and stands outside of the city of Babel and he looks at what they're doing with his own eyes. And then the judgment comes. A little bit later on, he shows up and has lunch with Abraham, which is kind of cool. I had, I had lunch with God today. Right? He has lunch with Abraham. There's a couple of angels and God himself in human form shows up. The angel of the Lord is there. And then, and then as... The angel says, sin off. God says to himself, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. And then he has his conversation. And here's one of the things he says to Abraham. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see if they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. I'm going to go see it with my own two eyes. I understand what's going on. I know what's happening. I know more than anyone else does, but I'm putting my, my feet on the ground and my eyes on the target so that you will know that I know, so that you will know that this moment of judgment is just. I'm going to look you in the eye and say, boom time. That happens repeatedly. I think that's what's going on when Jesus goes into the temple. They're looking for the hand puppet Jesus. That's not the one who came. The real king came. And they're not ready for the real king. They don't want the real king. And so he goes in. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He looks, and then the next day everything changes. Right? When he's riding in, it's all hosannas. And then for the rest of the week, it's all havoc and harshness. When he's riding in, it's, here's the king. For the rest of the week, he's a criminal. Right? There's this massive pivot. And Jesus' actions are pretty stark for the rest of the week. During this week, uh, he does something that really throws a lot of people for a loop. He uses his power to kill something he made for no good reason at all. There's a fig tree on the Monday of Holy Week. He's walking back from Bethany into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and it's blooming, it's in leaf, it's beautiful, and he's hungry 
and he goes over to it, and there's no figs on it, and he curses it and says, may no one ever eat figs from you again. And we go, wow, kind of harsh. Son of God's a little grumpy today. Don't want to cross his path. What's going on? Right, and people have tried to make all kinds of explanations, but in doing that, they ignore the direct context. Mark tells us specifically, it doesn't have figs because it's not supposed to have figs. It is not the season for figs. Next day, they're coming in, Tuesday of Holy Week. They see the tree. Peter's like, whoa, it's dead. It's dead from the roots up. What happened? How did you do that? And Jesus talks about about faith and prayer, and then gets back onto the main point. But he kills this tree. Jesus shows up. He sees a tree that he's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And because it's doing what it's supposed to do, he kills it. What is that? It's all wrapped into this same story. Right, remember, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Who told it when it was supposed to have fruit again? Jesus. He kills a tree for doing what he designed it to do. Why? Is he mad at the tree? Is he just can't handle his hunger? That would be sin, by the way, because that would be the lust of the flesh. The fact that he's hungry, well, that's normal, but making that hunger the point He's not sinful. What's going on? Well, there's a, an image that shows up multiple times. It says, Israel's like my fig tree. And here's a fig tree. He's walked into the temple. He's looked at everything. He walks back out. He comes back into town. And every successive day is filled with hard things and judgment. And along the way in, here's a fig tree. It's a picture of Israel. And it is blooming and it looks beautiful, but it is absolutely fruitless and I curse it and it dies. It's a visualized sermon. It's an object lesson for his disciples who are standing there. Jesus doesn't hate the tree and he's not grumpy. He's been into the temple and he's looked around and he knows what's going on and he wants them to understand. So as they're back and forth, he preaches a sermon through this tree. So he goes into the city on that Monday. Let's read from there, verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And the other gospels say the other animals are there too. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out the city. They come back in the next day, and that's when the fig tree's dead, and that's when more hard things happen. The, the, the leaders come and immediately confront him and say, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? And Jesus says, I tell you what, you tell me who John the Baptist was, and I'll answer your question. He's not being coy. He's actually just answered their question. And he's answered it in a way that exposes their heart. It's another fig tree moment. He's looked around. He sees what's going on. He's bringing that to light, and he's going to deal with it. John the Baptist is a prophet whose message was Jesus 
is the Messiah. Follow him. And everyone knew John the Baptist was a prophet. The leaders rejected that. If they'd have been real leaders, if they'd have had actual courage, if they actually cared about the people at all, and they were convinced John the Baptist was a false prophet, they would be trying to protect the people from the false prophet, lead them away from his teaching into real truth, and they would have stood up for that belief. But they're not about the people. They're not about their uh, role before God. They're about themselves. The people believe he's a prophet, and we're afraid of the people because our status, our comfort, our our wealth, our position, everything about us depends on them accepting us as their leaders. They believe John's a prophet. We don't think so, but we're not gonna deny that because that would get us into trouble. If they admitted John was a prophet, Jesus would have answered their question. There's my authority. Not John. John said, I'm the Messiah. He's a prophet of God. I'm the Messiah. This is my house. My house, my rules. I come in and I change the rules as I see fit. Get on board. Jesus answered their question, but they're cowards because they're not actually leading at all. They're just serving themselves. And so they, they don't have the courage to say John's not a prophet. They don't have the courage. They don't believe he is a prophet. So they say, we don't know. Jesus said, well, I'm not gonna answer you then either. And then he tells a parable about a landowner who leases land to these people And when it's time to get the fruits, he sends a servant and they beat him. Sends another servant, they abuse him. Sends another servant, they kill him. Sends another servant and the the cycle repeats. Some they beat, some they they abuse, some they mock and they send them all away empty-handed and so finally he sends his son. They're gonna respect my son. He will get the fruit that is due me and they say, whoa, here comes the son. Let's kill him and let's take the vineyard. And it says that the leaders know that that's about them. Okay, that's the backdrop. Jesus comes in and he looks just like God did at Babel, just like God did for um, the time of of Moses, just like God did outside of, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's conspicuous in his integrity. He knows what's going on and yet he stands there and he looks around and says, yep, Yup, 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 yup. It's boom time. That's what's going on following Palm Sunday. And that's why he's asking those questions. That's why he's looking around. And if, if, if you still have a little bit of hesitation with that, turn over to Jeremiah chapter seven. Because this is what's in Jesus' mind as he's standing there in the temple looking around. That'll be obvious. When we're done here. Jeremiah 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Go stand out in front of the temple and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Here's the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, it is the temple of the Lord, isn't it? Not so much. It's become a farce. It's supposed to be the temple of the Lord, but that's not really what it is. He'll tell them what it really is in just a second. 
Behold, you trust in deceptive words, verse 9, to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after the other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That's what happens 600 years later. Jesus shows up and he looks around. I've seen it. This place is not the temple of the Lord. It's a den of robbers. Now, in Jeremiah's day, there's a word of hope saying, you still have time to turn. You still have time to change. And if you don't, it will be boom time. And he goes on and he talks about Shiloh. Go to my place in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people. And if you don't straighten up, I'm going to do the same to you, is what he goes on to say. Well, what happens at Shiloh? Psalm 78 captures that for us well. It says, when God heard what they were doing, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling in Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. In other words, he abandoned his temple because it wasn't really his house anymore anyway. And he left his people to judgment. Jeremiah, about 600-ish years before Jesus, is warning those people, saying, we're following in the footsteps of our forebears. And they suffered the consequences. Go to Shiloh, you'll see how things were destroyed and the tabernacle's long gone. We have the temple, it's about to be destroyed too. It is not the temple of the Lord and it is not a haven of safety. It's not where we can hide and then do whatever we want. It's not that, oh, we have the special relationship with God and as long as this building stands and we're called by his name, we can do whatever we want to do with impunity. That's not the way it works. He is not a puppet Five minutes and a glue gun do not change the reality that he is the absolute sovereign. And we are his people, yes, but we don't call the shots. We need to straighten up. That was the message of Jeremiah. And they didn't heed it. And they went into captivity. Judgment. Now Jesus comes in to the temple, which is not actually the house of God anymore. It has become the den of robbers. Supposed to be the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It is not my house. You've taken it over. And you think because you're here, because you have this place, because you bear a special name, you can do what you want, how you want, when you want, with impunity. You can come in here and make your little plans. It's it's a den of thieves, right? There's at least three things embedded in that. There's a greed aspect, and they seem to have been using extortionary practices in how they were doing things. That seems to be an illusion. But it's not just common thieves. There seems to be a revolutionary overtone to this. So there may be a political idea that this is a a hotbed of revolution and and rebellion in their hearts and nationalism that we're us and we don't care what anyone else. It's like that's probably going on in the temple as well. But the main point is this is your lair, Instead of being my house, the place where people come to worship, to encounter God, to pray, 
It's where you come to make your plans and live your life and it's your den, your lair. It's your stronghold. It's your house where you get to do what you want. And I'm not gonna let that stand. I've seen it with my eyes and it's boom time. The other thing in this passage that I think is helpful to pull um, things that we can use is... uh, in, in verse uh, 17, right? He's in the temple. This is in the process of throwing everything out. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of Robert. So the second part is a quote from Jeremiah. The first part, though, is a quote from Isaiah, and it's the other part that's grieving him. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer and of mission not of self-serving. I'm the king, and I've placed you in a special relationship. I've given you special privileges. I've given you special access, and your job is to help mediate that presence in the world. You are to live in this relationship of worship towards me. It's a house of prayer, and it is to have an impact in the world all around you. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. When the original temple was dedicated by Solomon, there's this really extended prayer that's recorded for us in Scripture, and the central section of it, there's there's a lot of verses about how when foreigners hear about this, they will come, and they will pray, and when they do, God hear their prayer. There's this component that says... You've made this all about you. You've, you've squashed your world into one dimension, right? And I need you to live in a three-dimensional world. I brought my world here. Here's my world. And it has three dimensions, as you can see. There's height, there's depth, and there's width, right? And if I can use the analogy without pressing it too far, here's what he's saying to them. Look, you are special in fact, but you are to live in this dynamic, doxological relationship with me. Doxology, praise, glory. There's to be worship. There's to be this worshiping, prayerful partnership. And you've taken that away. This isn't my house anymore. It's your den. It's your lair. It's where you plan all your ill deeds. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. How how are we supposed to have any prayer? How are we supposed to have any meaningful engagement with God in all the hubbub and brouhaha of of changing money and, 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 and animals all through the courtyard? By the way, those aren't wrong. They're just in the wrong place. They needed to be able to change money because they had to come and pay a particular temple tax and you had to use a particular coin and most people didn't carry that coin with them. They're coming from all over the world. They needed some place to exchange for the proper currency. They just didn't need to do it where people are supposed to be praying. Right, they're coming and, and Mark highlights the fact that they're pigeons but the others make it clear all of the sacrificial animals are there. Right, if I'm coming from Western Turkey and I'm going to Israel and I'm gonna give a sacrifice, it's really hard for me to take a lamb. Right, it's uncomfortable in my pocket and it doesn't fit in the overhead bin. How do I do that? I take money and I go to Israel and I buy a lamb. I need to be able to do that. I just don't need to do that in the place where there's supposed to be prayer. They've made it all about them. And it's supposed to be about them in relationship with God. 
right? There's this vertical dimension, this doxological prayer and praise reality that's getting squashed out of their lives. And there's also this other dimension, horizontally, right? It's a house of prayer for all the nations. And because God's on a mission, and he invites his people to join him in the mission. And they're cutting that off too. They don't give a rip. Here's what's happened. It's more convenient. It's more convenient to just take care of everything right there in the courtyard. Who cares if those outsiders can't pray? Now think about this. How many times do you think throughout the years of history has convenience gotten in the way of the mission of God. That's kind of hard. That's not really convenient. Right? That's, that's what they're doing. So God pictures their world in three dimensions. There's this vertical dimension relating with them. There's who they are. And then there's this horizontal dimension in the world. And they're smashing it down, right? And when you smash this down, you might come up with something like this. Right? And it loses all of its shape. But it still has to have, you, you can't, you actually can't have something one dimensional, right? You cannot build your life around you. That's what they're trying to do. It will collapse. If I keep pressing this down until it's one dimensional or even two dimensionals, it ceases to actually exist. You can't see it, but there's actually a vertical dimension there still, or this wouldn't exist, right? Something that's one dimensional is only a concept, it's a mathematical idea, it doesn't work in the real world. For me to try to build my life around just me doesn't work in the real world. There's this dimensional dynamic that says, I am designed to live in relationship with God and this world. And that's what it means to be a child of God, and that's what they're violating. They've taken the temple over, and they've built it around the little kingdom of me. And the real king comes in, and he's really inconvenient, and he's kind of annoying, because he's expecting them to honor these other dimensions. He's expecting them to respond rightly to God, and they don't want to do that. And he's expecting them to have a heart for the rest of the world. And they don't. And so he looks around and he sees the state of things. And they are accountable. And it's boom time. And that's what creates those conflict moments over the next several days. But he starts by checking it out very carefully and personally. And it really boils down to two questions. And as, as we bring this kind of home to ourselves. Right, we're talking about them. And there's some real differences, right? In Jeremiah's day, there was a failure. In Jesus' day, there was a failure. And this is because we're on Palm Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Easter Sunday hasn't happened. And until Easter Sunday and Pentecost happen, it's actually not possible to faithfully and long-term live out the dynamics that God calls us to. It's because of what Jesus does and because of the spirit in us that we can begin to live differently. Not perfectly. We still struggle. And that's why this passage is important for us as well. We can't fall into the same hole they can, but we are susceptible to the same concerns. And those same concerns can pull us off and create heartache in our lives. Right? Jesus is essentially saying to them, whose house is this? Now, what kind of house is it? 
I'm telling you it's the temple of God. You're saying it's the temple of God, but you've turned it into your own lair to do whatever you want. Sounds like we've got a difference about whose house this really is. What kind of house is it? I'm telling you it's a house of prayer for all the nations. You're telling me it's a place that you come and you feel comfortable. You want me to make your life what you want it to be instead of you wanting to get in with what I'm doing. I think we've got a significant fundamental disagreement on whose house it is and what kind of house it's supposed to be. That's actually a really good question to ponder because not what did Jesus see there. The real question I want to walk away with is what does Jesus see in me? What does Jesus see in me? And he's asking those same two questions, really. Whose house is it? This room, the place where I live, my car, my job, my family, my heart. Whose house is it? Whose house is it ultimately? I'm a child of the king. Is he a real king? Or am I still reaching for the hot glue gun? Give me five minutes. It'll be okay. If he's the real king and I'm his house, house rules come from him. The irony and the tragedy is that sometimes people feel like that's oppressive and that's hard and that's actually freeing. That's what I was made for. I know following my own rules is going to make a mess every single time. And I'm actually better at the game than most people I know. I live a life that's a little bit more stable than most people I know. I've learned a few things somehow by God's grace and it's like, okay, If I run it, I promise you it is going into the ditch and it won't be very long before it does that. We're just driving off the road and making a mess. You know that's the case for you too. That's just what it is to be human. House rules. Whose house is it? If it's his house, if I am his house, if I am his temple, then he gets to call the shots. Sometimes that rubs and sometimes that's hard and sometimes that's challenging, but he's the one. Hebrews, by the way, that verse we read is kind of stark and hard and there's a number of warnings, but it's really a book of encouragement. It's look what Jesus has done. Look what Jesus has opened up. Look what Jesus is anchoring. Look at what I now have. I have the spirit of God. House rules actually can work in me. I'm a child of the king. Am I letting him be king? What kind of house is it? Is it just, if I try to wrap it around me, I get one dimensional and then I'm not real. There's nothing that actually works in the world. It's a great idea and that's all it is, is an idea. What about that worship connection with God? How am I cultivating that? What about that missional dynamic where my life's a partnership and I've I've got an assignment from him, whatever it is for his glory and for the good of others, right? They get very um, self-important, right? Who do you think you are? He calls them out on that. You make long prayers just for appearance sake. You know, you love the seats of honor. You love to be called rabbi. Get very self-important, self-righteous, You know what? I'm susceptible to that too. I can find myself falling into that, thinking too much of myself, wanting to be too much the center of attention. I got the answers. Why doesn't the world just be like me? 
If the world was like me, it would be a better place. Come on, everyone, get with it. All right, now I can say that kind of funny and goofy, but there's a part of that that's actually a true feeling, and it's like, what is wrong with me? I have too high an opinion of myself. That's my problem. He's the king, I'm not. Self-importance will drive me in the wrong direction. So will self-indulgence, because that's the other thing, right? We want comfort, we want convenience. Yeah, we don't care what happens to the Gentiles. We don't care if you can't really pray here. It's easy. Let's just do it this way. Greed is driving the other side of that equation. Look at all the money we can make right here in the temple. How much do we become self-indulgent? How much is our comfort what drives us? It's kind of hard. I, don't, I think I'll pass. Well, it's okay to sometimes pass. I'm not supposed to do every hard thing, but do I do any hard thing? When was the last time I sacrificed? When was the last time I actually served? And what was my attitude in serving? This one caught me yesterday or the other day. Sometime this week. I've lost track of which day. It's like, oh, I got to do this. I need about 20 minutes to get my heart aligned. I'm going to do the right thing because I've been doing this a while. It's like, I know that's stupid not to. I'm just going to get myself in deeper trouble. I'll do this. But my heart wasn't there. Oh, you know, what was my quotient of as unto the Lord? It was a little low at that point. Sometimes you have to do things because Jesus wants you to and do them joyfully. I'm susceptible to that. These people didn't wake up one day and say, how corrupt can we make ourselves? How far off base can we go? How defiant can we be towards God? These are actually kind of the best. One of the reasons Jesus, especially the Pharisees, one of the reasons he has so many sparks with them is they get so much right, and yet they are completely off base because of these things, right? They become self-important. They become self-indulgent. They've turned God's house into their house. And they've changed what the house is all about. And the king comes into the city and they miss it all together. They reject him because he's not a king to their liking. But kings aren't popularity contests. Sovereigns, true sovereigns, aren't elected. Which is a great, important point. If the true sovereign is corrupt, we're in deep, deep trouble. But if the true sovereign is willing to offer his life in exchange for mine and loves me intensely to that point and is incorruptible himself, well, that's actually a pretty good place to start life from. And maybe the stuff that I'm resistant to, maybe that's me. Whose house is it? What kind of house is it right now? The God who sees me, that can be scary. But it also just be such a blessing. It was for Hagar, it was for Moses, it was for Noah, and it is for us. He sees and he understands and he's walked and he has compassion and he will not leave us or forsake us. It's his house. It's a good opportunity to let him clean it up a bit. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We're going to pray, take our offering. Lord, 
You are the sovereign. We are your people. May we learn from the mistakes, failures, and sins of those that have gone before. And may we delight in the grace that we have because you have chosen us. We didn't choose you, you chose us, and you have ordained us to be fruitful and to remain. Lord, we want to live that out in fresh ways this season. Would you take control of your house and would you make it the kind of house you want it to be and help us to delight in that and cooperate with that. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.